Welcome to Blitzcast, an NFL Draft podcast brought to you by NFLDraftBlitz.com. And now, your hosts, Alex Kavtov and Ed Hunt. Welcome to another episode of Blitzcast. We're going to start the show with the Philadelphia Eagles. Carson Wentz is struggling. You know, the Eagles scored three points against the Packers through two and a half quarters Doug Peterson is in trouble. Howie Roseman, uh, the GM, uh, the guy who has constructed this team, is also in trouble. It seems like everything is in shambles right now. This team won a Super Bowl a couple of years ago, and it seemed like a very stabilizing franchise. Now just everything has gone wrong. Again, injuries have affected this team this year like they have in the past couple of years. Ed, I'm going to bring you in. What's your take on Carson Wentz, and uh, do you think that he will return as the quarterback of the Philadelphia Eagles in 2021? I, I think the main issue with the Philadelphia Eagles is actually not quarterback play, but I think it's their offensive line. I mean, they've ha- they have so many injuries on the offensive line, it's almost astronomical the numbers and I mean they're playing like their fourth third and fourth team players on the offensive line so I think I think you know the the offense needs to be cut a little bit of slack you know I think with Carson Wentz is that they've invested so much money and so much guaranteed money into him that it's almost like impossible to cut him I mean it would cost them I think it was like 59 million dollars in dead money if they were to cut him at the end of the year, I mean that is just insane. I think it's in the it's in the Eagles' best interest to to roll with Carson Wentz. And you know what? If it, if it really just isn't working with Carson Wentz, then you know they just drafted a guy in the second round in Jalen Hurts. I don't think it'll be very easy for the Philadelphia Eagles to make the change at quarterback. So I think they're going to give Carson Wentz all every opportunity they can to win the job back. The one thing that has really stood out about Carson Wentz this year is the amount of interceptions that he has thrown. Because if you look at the last three years prior to that, he's always been a guy that that takes care of the football. The offensive line issues is nothing new for him. It seems like offensive linemen and wide receivers go down every year for the Philadelphia Eagles. And Carson Wentz still played well. This year, that number is really high. He is pressing. And something is up. Maybe, I'm just going to throw it out there. Aaron Rodgers was motivated. Pretty obvious he was motivated when the Packers drafted Jordan Love at the end of the first round. He wanted to prove to the entire world that he can still get it done. Well, we all know the Eagles drafted Jalen Hurts in the second round. I'm just throwing it out there. Maybe it bothered Carson Wentz. Just having him over his shoulder, knowing that possibly the Eagles are looking at a guy that might replace him in a year or two because you don't just draft a quarterback in the second round to just have him around as a wildcat guy, a specialty quarterback. And it seems like something is going wrong with Carson Wentz. He's never been a quarterback that is... He's never had good footwork. I mean, that's always been his biggest problem, but he's kept those mistakes down to a minimum. He didn't throw picks. He is throwing an an insane number of interceptions this year. The Eagles, I mean, they've seen him struggle, and they've pulled the plug on him. I mean, Jalen Hurts will get the start against the Saints 
this week. And according to Bovada Sportsbook, the Eagles are a, a seven-point underdogs versus the Saints. Doug Peterson has seen enough. That coaching staff has seen enough. And they've pulled the plug on Carson Wentz. And say Jalen Hurts, I mean, he didn't look that good in, in mop-up duty when he came in. Say Jalen Hurts comes in and plays well. What do you do then? I mean, you talk about dead money, but what do you do then? Do, do you have his contract on the sidelines? I mean, obviously the Eagles are going to ride with Jalen Hurts at this point. Well, I think in the short term, sure, they're going to they're gonna go with Jalen Hurts, and they're, they're going to want to see what they have in him. Just in my mind, I just don't see the Jalen Hurts pick working out like they imagined it. To be honest with you, when I saw him get picked by the Eagles in the second round, I said, okay... What they want is just somebody if Carson Wentz goes down because they have so much guaranteed money tied up in Carson Wentz. Although there are very different types of quarterbacks, I mean, he, he kind of plays the role of a Nick Foles. It's like Carson Wentz goes down, you can roll with Jalen Hurts for, you know, six or seven games. And let's be honest, Carson Wentz has had injury issues throughout his career. And I, I think really when they drafted him, it was really just an injury in injury insurance policy. When the Eagles drafted Carson Wentz with the second overall pick, they thought they were getting a franchise type of quarterback. But when the Eagles made that Super Bowl run and and beat the Patriots in that exciting game at the end, it was Nick Foles that that guided him there. Uh, We heard teammates from afar, some of them, say that Carson Wentz is, is not the most likable character in the locker room. He doesn't always accept his faults. And right now, they're catching up with him. He's got to correct them because we all know teams are willing to move. They're willing to eat that dead money. I mean, the Rams ate that dead money with Todd Gurley. And I think if they realize that Carson Wentz might bring him like a a second or a third round pick in a trade, I think the Eagles are going to be willing to do that. And it's not only about Carson Wentz. The way the Eagles are playing right now, it seems like Doug Peterson is in real trouble. This is a win-me league in the NFL. If you're not winning today, nobody cares that you won the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. And there are a lot of rumblings out there that Doug Peterson has, has lost this locker room. And this goes far beyond Carson Wentz. This is about... The, the coaching staff in general. It, it's tougher to cut players. It's tougher to get rid of players. And I think the first one that's going to go is is Doug Peterson. I'm, I'm just not ready to throw Doug Peterson, you know, under the bus yet. I'm just, it could happen at the end of the year. But to be totally honest with you, when you have a lot of injuries, you kind of have to give the head coach a pass. When you lose a lot of guys in the offensive line, it's very possible for any team to lose a lot of guys in the offensive line. But how, how are you supposed to win games? How are you supposed to protect your quarterback? How is your quarterback supposed to play well if your offensive line is all is is all injured? If I'm the owner of the Eagles, I roll with what I have. You know, and and I just I I see what I have in Jalen Hurts and I'm just not ready to pull the plug on Doug Peterson. I guess it remains to be seen, but somebody is gonna go. And I think in this case the coach usually goes before the player. Especially if you don't have the, you don't find the the trade partner that's willing to accept Carson Wentz bloated contract, and it also puts other teams on notice. There are plenty of other teams out there looking to extend 
their quarterbacks, that fifth-year option, or possibly give them a, a bigger contract. And I'm looking at you, Baker Mayfield. I am looking at you. You were obviously the number one overall pick a couple of years ago, and that's going to be an interesting case for the Cleveland Browns as well because they've seen the good, they've seen the bad, they've seen the ugly from Baker Mayfield, and they just they don't know which Baker they're going to get every year. But right now, he's playing well. It just it goes to show you that you never know. You think you have a franchise guy, and a couple of years ago, Carson Wentz was being talked about as an MVP candidate, and today he looks like a broken man that's just trying to find his way. He has lost his confidence. He is again turning the ball over, making some rookie mistakes. Doesn't know where to go with the football. I mean. He's never been the most accurate guy in the world. I mean, he's never going to be like a Drew Brees putting up 70% you know, percent completions out there every game. But it seems like, I mean, whatever it is, it's not working. And somebody is going to go. Let's talk about the greatest living NFL head coach and possibly the greatest head coach of all time in the NFL. Let's talk about Bill Belichick. I mean, his run of success is unprecedented. He is one one of just four living coaches to guide the Cleveland Browns to the playoff. I mean, that says a lot. He's also, you know, guided the New England Patriots to heights that they've never been to. He's been to nine Super Bowls. He's won six championships. He's made 13 conference championship game appearances uh, since taking the helm in, uh, in 2000. He has ruled the AFC East division up to this point in the 21st century. Obviously, this year, the Patriots are not going to win that division. They're finally going to surrender it. That leads us to our next conversation. We wanted to see the success that his assistants have had when they moved on to other jobs, whether it's college or in the NFL, the guys that he's had under his wing. Let's start with the first obvious guy. Let's start with Nick Saban because Nick Saban was his defensive coordinator at Cleveland for four years. He mentioned it in an interview that that was the most miserable time that he has ever had. He didn't have any fun when he was the Cleveland Browns defensive coordinator, almost like taking a shot at Bill Belichick. And that's probably why he moved on and went to college for the most part. But Nick Saban, apart from failing as the head coach of the Miami Dolphins in that year and a half, he's found success at Michigan State, at LSU, he's won a national championship. And at Alabama, I mean, he has built a program, just a powerhouse, Ed. Nick Saban is to college football what Bill Belichick is to the NFL. I mean, when you talk about, you know, Nick Saban never really did it with the Miami Dolphins, but you could say, I mean, who was a better college head coach, more legendary than Nick Saban? Who do you think has a better resume than Nick Saban in college football? I would say Urban Meyer. Urban Meyer is the only... He's not a head coach right now, but wherever he has been, he has won. Whether it was at Utah, at Florida, at Ohio State. We'll see if Urban Meyer comes back to coaching, by the way. There are some rumors out there connecting him with Texas. I do think that Nick Saban is a better college football head coach because he's won, what, six championships at Alabama? And he's won one at LSU. He's built some powerhouses out there, and when he moves on, 
his statue is going to appear on the outside of that Alabama stadium. You don't get much of an argument from me. I'll throw out Urban Meyer, but I don't think it's that clear. The thing, the thing you have to say about Nick Saban is realize that Alabama was a not a good football program you know, when he took over. I mean, it was like a struggling, in the same way like Brian Kelly took over a struggling Notre Dame program. Alabama was a, as it was a historical team, but they were not a great team. And Nick Saban revived that program. I mean, that's, that's the other thing about it is, I mean, he made that team a rags to riches. I mean, when he came in at LSU, LSU had a track record of success. But when he took Alabama, um, Alabama and made them from basically rags to riches, that's that's really where he became a legendary coach. Yeah, he made Alabama relevant again. Alabama was, was ruling the college football world back in the day and has lost a step, and he certainly you know, turned it into a powerhouse. By the way, the Patriots on Thursday night, they have a game against the Los Angeles Rams, and according to Bavada, New England is a five-point uh, underdog versus the Los Angeles Rams. They just destroyed, I would say demolished, the Los Angeles Chargers uh, last weekend. Let's come back to the assistants. So you, you don't get an argument from me that Nick Saban is the greatest college football head coach of all time, and he didn't spend that much time with Bill Belichick. But there are some people that spent seems like a lifetime with him. And I would say the only other success story is Bill O'Brien. Bill O'Brien had some success at Penn State uh, when he took over that messy situation after Joe Paterno. And then he got the job with the Houston Texans. And he was, I'll give him that, he was an above average head coach who was a terrible GM and should have never been in charge of making personnel moves. What do you think of Bill O'Brien? What's his legacy? He will get another chance, I'm sure, but where do you stand on on Bill O'Brien? Well, I mean, for for the Belichick coaching tree, I think he's I think he's a little above average. I mean, the thing about Bill O'Brien is he won division championships at Houston. You know, they had some good years, but I mean, he never he never really had the job for that long. I I mean, I I don't put him you know, in that elite category with someone like he's he's nowhere the coach that Nick Saban is, or you know, I mean there there are other names that we're gonna go after, you know, like Josh McDaniels and that that just have a lot more promise. But I think I think Bill O'Brien, you know, he did he did pretty well at Penn State. I think he did well as an offensive coordinator, and I and he won some divisions at Houston. So I mean, he's not he's not gonna go down in history as a bad coach. I'll agree with that as as much as I, I'm not a big fan of uh, what Bill O'Brien has done. But you know, above average head coach who is just a terrible personnel man. Uh, he's a terrible GM that made some bad decisions and, and just kind of blew up that Houston Texans franchise at the end with, with some of his decision making. And that's where the coaching tree kind of ends. There's this assumption that Bill Belichick... He has great assistants, but when they go out and become the head coach of some franchise, they don't achieve that success. Romeo Cornell, a guy that that was the head coach of the the Cleveland Browns and the Kansas City Chiefs, four and fifteen with the Chiefs, twenty four and forty with the Cleveland Browns. Romeo Cornell has failed as the head coach in the NFL. That's the bottom line. Charlie Weiss. He went on to Notre Dame, 
during his first two years, everything was great and dandy with the recruits of a former head coach. He went to the BCS championship game twice in those first two years. Then everything just blew up in his face, and he didn't have much success after that. Notre Dame fired him. He went on to the University of Kansas. He lasted there for three years. That was kind of the end of that. We haven't heard from Charlie Weiss again. Eric Mangini. I think he went 10-6 and six in New York one year. In his final five seasons, 23-41. and 41. Josh McDaniels also turned out to be a, a so-so head coach. I'm sure he's waiting for Bill Belichick to retire so he can take over that Patriots organization. But I don't have much faith in, in Josh McDaniels as well. A great offensive coordinator. I would say an average head coach with, with the Denver Broncos. We've seen Matt Patricia. Matt Patricia has failed. I know you're still high on him. You, He'll get a second act in a couple of years. I hope he will learn from his past mistakes. But Matt Patricia was a huge disappointment with the Detroit Lions. And then the next two guys, I mean, they offer promise. Yeah, that's Brian Flores and Joe Judge. Right now, it's it's still too early to call because Flores is in his second year with the Dolphins. And Joe Judge is in his first season with the New York Giants. Just to add on that, I mean, you pretty much covered all of them. I mean, Eric Mangini was kind of the first prodigy of Bill Belichick, and he he went to the rival Jets. The Jets thought, okay, you know, you know, if he can't beat him, join him. They brought in Eric Mangini, and he did well his first year. I mean, it was like it showed promise, and then it just totally fell apart. And I mean, he 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 couldn't stay in the game, and. That was a difficult situation. The thing is, is with the two, with the two we don't know yet, is uh, Brian Flores and Joe Judge. I, I will say Joe Judge is probably already a little bit in the disappointment category. I mean, I just thought there was really high hopes for the Giants, and you know they've gotten an opportunity to draft a left tackle and a quarterback by the time he got there. So it's not like they're totally in just shambles and, you know, totally in rebuild. I mean, they've, they've started the rebuild process and it still hasn't turned the corner yet. I, I'm still going to hold out hope for Joe Judge. With Brian Flores, I mean, it seems like he found his guy with two. I think he drafted a really good team with it, with all the draft picks that he got. I, I kind of give him a wash you know, because it was kind of like a tank for two a year. You know, it was kind of like he was playing with somebody else's players. And now that he's starting to play with his own players and he drafted some good guys, I, I give Brian Flores. But, I mean, realistically, Nick Saban is his his best prodigy, I would say. And we'll, we'll, we'll go down in history as his best prodigy. Brian Flores could be his best NFL prodigy. Yeah, most likely. Uh, what we're seeing from Brian Flores is very promising in his second year. First year was a rebuilding year, but they still played hard for him. And the players just seemed to care, the players that he had on that team during his first year. In his second year, I mean, this is a, a borderline playoff team. They're in the playoffs right now. And certainly they have overachieved. As far as I'm concerned, Brian Flores should be the coach of the year because he's doing it with less talent on that team, and they're winning more games. I'm sure he's not going to win it. It's going to be Andy Reid or, or Sean Payton, but he will get my vote because Brian Flores has been tremendous, and he's doing it his way. He's actually a likable guy. This isn't like Bill Belichick who's trying to scare people 
you know, who just doesn't talk to them, doesn't show any personality out there. Brian Flores wins the team over with his genuine personality. That's that's what I've heard, and I like that. He's coming from the Bill Belichick tree, but he's being himself, and I think that's very important. Not trying to copy somebody else, but just being yourself. Uh, it seems to be working in in Miami. And Joe Judge, I mean, how can you judge him? I mean, the NFC East is is brutal this year, but they're in first place right now. This team has won, I believe, four games straight without Saquon Barkley, who is arguably their best player. They're still trying to figure out whether Daniel Jones is that franchise type of quarterback. I can't argue with that. I mean, he has turned the ship this year. And and if the Giants are on the cusp of making the playoffs, even in a bad NFC East division, I mean, I, I would say that's a success for his rookie season. He's he's overachieving because the Giants were in a rebuild year. It remains to be seen with those last two guys. Right now, they're incomplete. But if you look at everything else except for Nick Saban, it, it just doesn't look good. I mean, these guys just seem unprepared to be head coaches, whether it was in college or in the NFL. And I'm sure a few of them will will get a few more jobs. Bill O'Brien will get a job. Josh McDaniels will eventually get that job. And I'm sure Matt Patricia will resurface if uh, if he comes back and, and joins Bill Belichick's staff next year and just kind of resurrects his career as, as the defensive coordinator. And that's the synopsis of that Bill Belichick coaching tree, I would say overall, it's disappointing. Even though you have Nick Saban, who is kind of driving the arrow up. But I would say overall, it's it's a real disappointment for me. Let's move on to college football. And let's start with the player that we wanted to put under the, the scouting microscope. A wide receiver from Alabama. Speaking of Nick Saban, it's a guy that decided to return for his senior year. Uh, We saw Jerry Judy enter the draft after his junior season. Henry Ruggs entered the 2020 NFL draft after his junior year. Devontae Smith decided to return. And this year, he has been the main man, I mean, in that passing game, especially since Jalen Waddell went down with an injury midway through the season. Ed, he has been on fire. Everybody knows you have to stop Devontae Smith because he's getting the ball. Well, you know what? Nobody has been able to stop him. I mean, this is a guy who, who really doesn't have a lot of weaknesses. I mean, when you, lo- when you look at his game, I mean, this is a guy who really can do it all. I found a few weaknesses on tape with this guy, but for the most part, I mean, this is, this is, this is a top 10 pick. What do you like about him? I mean, you're obviously putting him up there pretty high. What do you like about Devonte Smith? What what stands out the most? Well, I think he has the you know the college production being the Heisman conversation as a wide receiver in this era. He's a good runner after the catch. He has the speed to take the top off the defense, make that big play. You know he he, he can line up in the slot on the outside. You know that can help him early in his career get on the field. The best part about him is he's an advanced route runner for a college receiver. He has good speed running his routes. Decent hands. I like his toughness after the catch. You know, he doesn't have a problem getting off the line of scrimmage. He has a good release. He has good speed. Um, He's been a big game player for Alabama. You know, these LSU games have been great games for him. You know, not only is he a deep threat, he's also a guy you can use in a screen. And he's effective in it. 
that's something I like. You know, you can add another dimension to the offense. You know, if you, if you want to run a screen, you know, let's say your your offense is running a backup quarterback this week and they're blitzing him heavy, you know, you can use him on that. You know, he has 6'1 height. Not amazing for this era, but, I mean, he's still, still good. He's still relevant for this era. I mean, he has good agility in his feet. I mean, he's a guy who I think could have a good three cone. He has good catch radius. He's getting separation at the SEC level. And, you know, last but not least, I mean, if you need to throw it up to him and high point it to him, I mean, he, he can high point the ball. All right. Ed has listed a lot of Devontae Smith's strengths, and he sounds amazing. He sounds like Superman out there, but he really has. I mean, the last four games, he's been on fire. He's already had two games where he's gone over 200-plus receiving yards. He's had games with multiple touchdowns. He is in the Heisman conversation. Ed is right. Uh, He is arguably the the best route runner in this draft. And I would actually make the case that he's a better route runner than than Jerry Judy was when he was coming out because he can manipulate the defender. Uh, He's got great balance. And when he's coming out of that, at the top of that route, he's so in control with that first step. He knows what he's going to do. Like I said, even when you know he's getting the ball on third down or in the clutch, he's still able to to get open. And that's that's probably been the amazing part. The only thing I would say is his slight build. He's 6'1". He's going to be closer to six feet at the combine, probably six feet and a half. But he's 175 pounds. That's really light. He's a lot stronger than he initially appears when you look at him. He, he plays, I'm not saying he's like the next Anquan Bolden or A.G. Brown, but he is a much stronger wide receiver than he appears at 175 pounds. And I'm sure you'll you'll get up to 180 pounds. And I was trying to find a comparison. Like, I was trying to find a comparison. Like, who does Devontae Smith remind me of coming out of college? Like, which NFL wide receiver? And I couldn't find one currently. But there is one wide receiver that I decided to compare him with. That's Marvin Harrison. Like Marvin Harrison at the combine, he ran in the high four fours. He was also about six one, six feet, one hundred and eighty five pounds. He was an advanced route runner. It was really fluid coming out of his breaks. He was precise. And I see the same type of game from Devonte Smith. Harrison obviously could line up in the outside in the slot, and you could do the same thing here. I know that that's high praise with the Hall of Fame wide receiver. I see a lot of similarities, and the fact that he's always clutch in the biggest games, and I remember during his freshman year when he caught that pass for for the last touchdown from Tua to win the national championship, and he continues to come up big. When they lost to LSU last year, he was the guy that brought them back. He was the guy making those catches. It wasn't Judy. It wasn't Ruggs. Devontae Smith was, was the guy that the Alabama coaches and, and the quarterback was looking in his direction. And that tells me something. And his hands have improved. Last year, he had those drops. Uh, but Judy kept saying that Devontae Smith has the best hands on the team. And I'm seeing it this year. I think he has improved in that regard. And he's gotten better. And I'm not seeing those obvious drops. I'm not going to go top 10 with you. He's one of my favorite wide receivers, maybe even going to become my favorite one as we break down all the guys that will enter. But I'm not going to go with the top 10 pick because of a slight build and because he's not 
he's not going to run a 4-3 at the combine. And those guys that do go in the top 10, like Tavon Austin, like John Ross, I mean, those are like blazers, guys that can take the top off the defense in the NFL. And I'm not sure he's going to be that type of guy consistently. 40 time is overrated, no question about it. If he was 200 pounds, he would be in the top 10. I think he's going to go somewhere between 15 and like 22. I think that's his range. I think he's the most complete wide receiver in this draft. And what is it about Alabama wide receivers and route running? Amari Cooper, Calvin Ridley, Jerry Judy, now Devontae Smith. These guys can run routes, man. Yeah, it is a little bit of a of a wide receiver you. And, and you know, I, th- I think some of that has to do with the fact that, you know, Saban kind of comes from a, a defensive back background. And, I mean, how do you beat a defensive back? You get a great receiver. And Saban has cherished that. I just, when you talk about the top 10 conversation, the reason why I want to put him in the top 10 conversation is Henry Ruggs was the number one receiver taken last year. And granted, he's been kind of a bust, but he's been a little bit of a bust. But I still I still hold out hope for him. But the fact of the matter is, is that, I mean, you know, you get a guy like Devonta Smith, you light a fire under, under him, and I think he is literally a top 10 worthy pick. I mean, he, he he's definitely better than Ruggs. I, I like Bateman, but I think he's better than Bateman. Um, you know, teams teams are looking for wide receivers, and this is this is a guy who's a game changer. The only thing is, teams are gonna ask whether 175 pounds or 180, whether he can be an outside wide receiver. He doesn't face press coverage in college, and that's that's gonna be a question mark there. Not a lot of people, not a lot of corners, are willing to get in the face of Devontae Smith and challenge him in college. You know, defensive coordinators are not gonna put their cornerback on an island like that. In the NFL, you're going to be challenged on the outside. So that's going to be the question mark. His slight build and whether he can get off press coverage with those corners that are 190, 200 pounds, considering that he's never going to get up to 200 pounds just because his body type says that he's going to be 180, 185. I mean, that's that's his max. He's not a guy that's going to take the top off the defense in the NFL. He's doing it right now, but he's not Henry Ruggs. He's not going to run a 4-2-8. He's not going to run a 4-3. Best that he can do is like a 4-4-5, 4-4-6, but I think he's going to be somewhere in the high 4-4s. He's not going to be one of those explosive wide receivers like a Deshaun Jackson that's just going to, that's the deep threat. I mean, he's got a lot more to his game, and that's why I think that there's no way he's going to be in the top 10 because usually top 10 wide receivers, you either have to be really fast or you have to be really, really physically gifted in terms of being like 6'3", 210 pounds, you know, big hands, huge catching radius. That's what history of the NFL draft tells us. And I just, I don't see Devontae Smith in that regard. But that's actually a good thing. How many... Four two, four three wide receivers have gone on to to be great ones. Usually, like I said, we see guys running in the high four fours, low four fives, and those are the guys that have success because they're great route runners. They can change up speeds. They're really quick and they can create separation. It's not about speed. It's about your footwork, and it's about your ability to. You know, to make that move at the top of the route. And that's Devontae Smith. I mean, he's got it down to a science. It's almost like an art form with him. And uh, I was surprised that he didn't come out 
with the rest of the guys last year. Again, he's having the type of year that he's having. He definitely deserves to be in the Heisman conversation. Even if he's not going to win it, he deserves to be one of the five finalists. We didn't talk about him last week, I think, when we talked about Heisman, but he deserves it, man. I'm sure he, again, we're going to see him come up big in the SEC championship game against Florida because that's what Devontae Smith does. Let's continue with college football talk, and let's talk about the disappointing Pac-12. That's what Ed believes, because Oregon lost to Cal this past weekend. Washington lost to Stanford. So there's not like a clear-cut team that has stood out, but I'm going to make the case that USC is that team this year. They're still undefeated. They're 4-0. Right now, they're, they're having a good season. The Trojans look like that lead dog this year well i mean you know usc is undefeated but remember they had to have a just a heroic comeback against arizona state to be where they are so to be honest with you i'm not i'm not ready to you know pencil in usc pac-12 champion you know potential you know top six team new year's new year's six team i'm just not ready to do that to be honest with you, and I mean, you know, the criticism goes around. I mean, you know, you look at a team like Washington. I mean, they lost to Stanford. Stanford did play a good game, but uh, I mean, Washington lost. Oregon Oregon and Washington are playing this weekend, and that's going to be for basically a spot in the Pac-12 championship. I think the winner of that game represents the North, and I mean, that could very well be represented by a two-loss team. There is one little bright spot that I wanted to mention about the Pac-12, and that's that uh, Colorado is undefeated. Um, I I don't know if they've necessarily dominated teams that they've played. I I think, you know, Sam Neuer is the quarterback. I mean, he's kind of more of a running quarterback. He's a little bit like Montez, you know, more athletic plays than necessarily throwing the ball down the field. Um, They're running the ball really well. This guy, Broussard, had 300 yards rushing in the game against Arizona. I'm happy for Colorado. I mean, Colorado is is off to a 4-0 start. I'm happy for their new head coach and Carl Durrell, who got another opportunity. He was the head coach at UCLA. And absolutely, Colorado has been, (laughs) has just been running down teams' throats on the ground. And Neuer is a former safety. Former safety becomes quarterback to, to take over for Montez. But I want to come back and circle to USC. I mean, USC is is coming off a dominant performance against Washington State. Uh, I think the the Trojans, you know, that win on opening weekend kind of started something. I'm not saying that Helton is going to keep his job in for, for the next, like, five years. I don't think that's going to happen. But this year, to me, the Trojans look like the best team in the Pac-12. And this week, they're, they're facing their crosstown rival, they're facing the UCLA Bruins and USC Trojans, according to Bovada, are a two-and-a-half-point favorite versus UCLA. So that's always a fun game that, that gets people excited, USC against UCLA. I lived in California for a while, so I know what that's all about. I mean, that that's as good as it gets. Not SEC-type football, but as good as it gets for, for the Pac-12. I wanted to mention another team that's still undefeated. It's Coastal Carolina Chanticleers. I mean, they finally played a, a big-time program. They, they played BYU and, and Zach Wilson, and they came out on top. And they're still 10-0. Uh, 
they're going to play against Troy this week, and they've got the the Sun Belt Championship game and in a week and a half. Uh, they're going to play against Louisiana. It's really surprising that Appalachian State isn't there, but Coastal Carolina has been a feel-good story, Ed. They really have, and I mean, we had a Coastal Carolina beat writer on our show. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that, that, that came out of the BYU-Coastal Carolina game is that BYU had a cupcake schedule, and um, you know, sometimes we kind of overlook these non-Power 5 conference schools, but Coastal Carolina is a good team, and they beat BYU. So, I mean, I, I respect the fact that BYU wanted to play a good team um, that maybe was a little underrated, and they ended up coming out the loser. You've got old-world Zach Wilson, who's having a <laughs> great season. You've got, you know, big athletic guys on the outside, a wide receiver, and on the offensive line. Well, you know what? Coastal Carolina just knocked their butts down. I mean, that defensive line was able to get after Zach Wilson, and that was the problem. It wasn't like Zach Wilson was forcing the ball. He was just never in rhythm because Coastal Carolina pass rushers like Jeffrey Gunter, Teron Jackson, were always in his face. He wasn't able to set his feet, and and he didn't have all the time in the world in the pocket to set his feet and find his wide receivers. But you know what? BYU was still in position to win the game. With like 45, 50 seconds left, Zach Wilson had one of those drives, and he got BYU to the two-yard line. They almost scored that touchdown to take the lead. But I take my hat off to Coastal Carolina. Again, the main reason they were able to win was force pressure on Zach Wilson with that front four. And then run the football on offense. I mean, C.J. Marable at running back, they were able to control the clock. They had a lot of third and four, third and three. Grayson McCall, the, the redshirt freshman quarterback, made a lot of good decisions. They picked up first downs. They had long drives, and they kept Zach Wilson on the sideline. And he was never able to get in rhythm because he didn't have that that many possessions. So, And this week, uh, Coastal Carolina... According to Bovada, is a 13.5-point favorite versus the Troy Trojans. I don't understand this game just because Coastal Carolina is already in the Sun Belt Championship game. I think they should have given Coastal Carolina a bye because Louisiana has a bye, and Coastal Carolina has to play this weekend. But it's going to be another fun celebration if they do win. This usually happens. But one thing I notice sometimes, too, is like, you know, we, we may kind of make this assumption if you have to play versus the bye, you know, it's better to it's better to have the bye. And certainly, like, you know, in the way that the NFL playoffs are structured where you get a bye and you kind of just move on to the next round, that's true. But sometimes, sometimes playing a game, I mean, there's a risk of injury, but I think sometimes playing a game before a big game is actually a good tune-up. You know, it's, it's, like, a, it's like a super practice. You know, it's a, it's a practice where, you know, the teams stay intense. Because, you know, the thing is, is Louisiana is going to have to kind of come off a long layoff. And certainly they'll be healthier. But, I mean, at the same time, they, they won't be as sort of mentally... I, I, think, I think it's more, it's more of a mental, mental state of engagement. It's kind of like that high adrenaline state. I'm actually, I'm actually not thinking this is a huge tragedy for Coastal Carolina. Well, let's hit on one more topic before we get out of here. Uh, Ohio State has canceled its game with Michigan because Michigan has a, a few players that have a positive test when it comes to COVID. It's the third game this season that Ohio State has had to cancel. I mean, this team 
deserves to be in that top four, that, that college football playoff. I want to get your thoughts, Ed. Obviously, the game against Michigan is canceled. What do you think? Does Ohio State deserve to be in the college football playoff when the the rest of the teams have played, you know, 10 or 11 games? I, I think so because, I mean, they've won all their games and they're beating up on these teams that they're supposed to beat up on and they beat teams like Indiana and Penn State. So to be honest with you, I think I think Ohio State has a good resume and, you know, maybe you don't put them you don't put them in the top three, but, I mean, you still got to give them a chance to dance because to be honest with you, I think there's a chance that they could win the national championship. Like, I'm not, I mean, there, there's a chance that Ohio State is the best team in college football. I, I second that. Put Ohio State in there. They're a much better team than, than Texas A&M or even my Florida Gators that I've supported throughout this season. I just think it would be fun to, to see Clemson, you know, Notre Dame. It, it's what you want to see. And then, you know, get Ohio State in there. And uh, then you're going to have Alabama. So just you want to get these four powerhouse teams this year. And you could have the the best college football playoff, you know, come January time. So I think the best matchup and logic says get Ohio State in there because they are one of the four best teams in college football. Thank you for listening to another episode of Blitzcast. Take care.